Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the summer in politics. And you ask us, why have the by-election candidates been so bad? So it looks like we're gearing up for a summer where the main story in town will be the speed of the restrictions being loosened on COVID-19. That was the theme at PMQs today. We're recording on a Wednesday. And usually summers are supposed to be particularly difficult for the opposition party. But it looks like Keir Starmer might have some opportunity to land some blows considering how controversially fast the unlocking appears to be. Stephen, do you think that the Labour Party will be able to sort of ride on the momentum of its hold of Batley and Spen and and make some political hay? So the reason why summer is usually a difficult time for whoever is in opposition, obviously because it those have been in power for so long now we kind of default to going Labour. But for whoever is in opposition is the government somebody who works for Cameron when they were in opposition said this to me the other day, they said, Yeah, you spend all of your time in opposition fighting for the spotlight. Then the summer happens and you're like, oh God could we really have slightly less of the spotlight because the government broadly goes away or, you know, there's a war or a major crisis, like the kind of thing where you can't really get attention anyway. But the normal state of Westminster in the summer is journalists going, hey, why don't we do Labour beef or why don't we do Lib Dem beef or why don't we do, you know, Tory beef back in the day? And I think the main sort of boost of, of battling, which we talked about a bit last episode, but I imagine we'll talk about some more this episode because Alva is with us today, is that it meant that they didn't immediately launch to like a summer of beef. I still don't think that the handling of the pandemic will be that important to the outcome of the next election, unless it means that the Conservatives can sort of find it easier to argue for austerity, which I'm afraid I personally don't buy, because I kind of think that the reason why austerity became harder to argue for was not, you know, about primarily about discourse. It was that they had done the easy from a, their electoral coalition perspective cuts in the first five years and it has just got more and more difficult to actually do more without bits of the conservative electoral coalition starting to yelp but i think the reason why it is useful for the labor party is broadly um what are we going to be talking about until the 19th of july whether or not this is about the right pace what will we be talking about for most of july into august any signs of whether or not this is working which means that the usual sort of like Wither Ed Davy, or should Keir Starmer be doing better, right? Your sort of hardy perennial, it's summer, let's talk about the opposition parties. I mean, one Lib Dem leader once said to me, not unreasonably, they said, you know, our, 
after I had done one of my, you know, people in the Lib Dems wonder why they're not doing better. And they were just like, Stephen, I put it to you that in my leadership, you have written one column about my about about the party when I became leader, one column about the party at a conference, and then another column in the summer about why we don't do better. And that's three times more than any other political <laughs> yeah. columnist. <laughs> yeah. But so I think it does help because it means that opposition parties don't have that sort of sudden horrible moment of having all of the oxygen to themselves. I think the interesting thing to watch out for, you know, for listeners kind of looking at this kind of first test of the new all singing, all dancing set up around Keir Starmer's leader's office is how they navigate summer. This is a much more experienced team. One of the things Keir Starmer does really prize and wanted to improve when he became leader and has thus far sort of failed to do was to increase the amount of institutional memory in the Labour Party. However, the, the communications part of that institutional memory has no institutional memory of opposition, let alone a summer of opposition. And so it will be interesting to see how they navigate this period of, oh God, do you know what? We really don't want to be this topic of every single newspaper column, story and think piece. Because even though I do think the opening will help them a bit, there is still going to be that August through to September period of, you know, there not being anything on the journalistic menu in Westminster. So we decide that, you know, opposition beef is what's on the menu. Yeah, and I'm serving up, well, not opposition beef because there's no beef in the Lib Dems at the moment, but it's not even recess. And I'm doing a piece on the Lib Dems today. So, I mean, they they should be flattered. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm doing it more, even before recess has begun. Such do I love the Lib Dems. I think that's right. It's going to be interesting because... I'm not sure how, what the two of you think, but I just feel like there's really very little appetite to talk about COVID in Westminster, even though this is the biggest story. A little bit similar to the way I think maybe the psychology of it for journalists changed with Brexit at the beginning of the year. There was no appetite to cover the Brexit deal on Christmas Eve. That's been consistent all year with a few notable exceptions. Brexit stuff is just not being covered brilliantly because people just like don't have the stamina for it anymore and then I think similarly because people have been covering coronavirus and living it for so long I think it's sort of it's maybe difficult for some people to reconcile personal feelings of kind of wanting things to get back to normal and being a little bit tired of this with the need to still cover it and I think you're right that it's just really likely certainly speaking from personal experience all of my friends are isolating at the moment. My poor friend had a birthday party at the weekend and most people couldn't go because they are either very sick with COVID or isolating because they've been pinged by the contact tracing app. I think that it's just really likely. So one of my friends is a teacher and half the staff in her school are off sick at the moment. Most of them actually are ill with COVID. It's not just that they've been told to self-isolate and I think that's putting enormous pressure on that school and we've had this big conversation about whether it's the right approach to require entire school year groups to exist as one bubble and, and you know whether that's disruptive to their education but the the flip side of that is actually with the easing of restrictions half the staff in some schools are off very sick anyway and I think that's having another disruptive effect so I think there might be more stories like that because I think we're going to see huge numbers of cases 
particularly among people my age who have their first job booked but haven't had their job yet or you know only had it in the in the first few weeks but I think that despite that and I think despite a lot of concerns among a lot of people it just doesn't feel like there's much appetite to have that conversation or to cover it as seriously anymore I don't know if 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 the two of you have noticed that it's different but I I feel like I haven't had a single conversation with an MP about COVID this week despite having quite a lot of conversations it's just not it's just not a policy priority I think it's just something that people maybe on a personal level don't really want to think about so much. I feel like there was some sort of Covid fatigue that set in in terms of you know what people wanted to speak about around Westminster there was a lot of build-up particularly for the Labour Party to that by-election and I think that meant that it was you know, secondary to a lot of conversations. I remember putting a bid in for an interview and saying, you know, I can take a test beforehand if you want. And it just hadn't really occurred to the person that I was talking to. So I think you're right. I think it did take a bit bit of a backseat, not in, not in a way that people were behaving irresponsibly, but just that that sort of fatigue had set in and there were more, maybe some more exciting political things to talk about. Having said that, I think as summer approaches, it is going to be back on the agenda. I mean, you can tell, I think, that NHS Test and Trace and the NHS contact tracing app are going to be two big stories over the summer because like you say so many people have been pinged by the app and are having to stay off work which is you know has been incredibly disruptive in schools they're going to change that bubble self-isolation system in September well actually from July the 19th to relying on NHS test and trace to do that contact tracing in schools as well so it basically depends on how efficient that system is. So we're going to see over the summer, I think, how effective that system is in society when there's so much virus in the population. And that in turn is going to make, I think, some concerns set in about whether or not it can actually work in schools. Because if you test positive for coronavirus, you still have to self-isolate for 10 days. So if all of the children in a school test positive for coronavirus, it's going to cause even more disruption than the current system, which most head teachers, you know, would say is not ideal. So there's that factor. And I also think there is a factor of how sustainable it is for people to sort of keep their Bluetooth switched on on that app to even keep the app. Mm. Well, Keir Starmer asked about that at PMQs Mm. today, which I thought was funny and interesting because I did see a Labour MP yesterday who was asked in Portcullis House to scan the, the QR code. And they just they just sort of whispered to me that they'd all deleted the app anyway. So <laughs> well, <laughs> well the, the, the the app situation around Westminster is just bizarre because okay, I guess it's easier if you're an MP because so one of the ways they keep journalists you know in their place is we're not able to ac- access the internet, so you have to go on this kind of food foraging journey. So you go to like debate, which is the experimental one, and you just look at it and you're like, God, these people were too busy asking if they could. They really should have been asking if they should blend these two slightly odd foods together. And some of them, even to check the menu, you have to you have to scan the thing you will be. And I'm just like, I'm so impressed as to how fast this app must 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 think I am. But yeah, maybe that's why they've they've all deleted it. But it is. I think we saw the beginnings of that yesterday with the England cricket team. Three of the players and four of the playing non-playing staff got pinged, and so they've had to because of how the cricketing bubble works they've had to get a whole new squad now I'm not gonna lie I know so little about cricket I don't know if that's as big a deal as it would be for England for the England football team in terms of the quality level I think you're asking level. the wrong yeah. people here yeah. Stephen but that I think is going to be a taste of things to come right in terms of this whole idea of oh we're going to do this and this will allow hospitality to revive a lot of hospitality venues will basically just tell their employees they need to delete the app which 
will be difficult for all of the hospitality industry because I think a lot of people, I mean, I wrote about this in Morning Call and several people got in touch to say, yeah, I think they said, I think this is a real problem. Yeah, so someone who runs a restaurant emailed me saying this is going to be a real problem, um, you know, for us because they just said, you know, we, we couldn't have enough staff on hand. We're not like the England cricket team or like the England football team where, you know, okay, there aren't 24 players of equivalent quality than could just come into the England football team. But, you know, they exist, right? They said, I I don't have, like, a shadow restaurant of people I can can bring in. So I don't really understand how this is going to work. And they said, and a lot of other restaurants are just going to get their employees not to do it. And they said, so presumably a lot of customers will go, oh, not going to a restaurant, they're going to be COVID dens. And as if on cue, after I, you know, said, oh, thank you, this is really useful, I really appreciate it, um several people saying oh i won't be going to restaurants because i think that they will be just telling their staff not to turn off the thing and they will therefore be covid zones or you know if you go to a concert right and the philharmonic gets pinged right your concert's cancelled right the the, you know the you know the festival hall has to reimburse you and i think that does mean it's going to be a slightly weird summer and also the big thing when you talk to sort of conservative you know economic thinkers and political strategists, the thing they're worried about, understandably, isn't there will be scarring, I long-lasting economic damage from the lockdown. And I can't help feeling that if I wanted to guarantee the possibility of long-lasting economic damage, it would be to have this sort of stop-go initial period of unlocking in which, like, nothing is reli- can reliably service your needs, right? And this has actually always been the case. I did a piece about workplaces a while ago and how actually the rules for workplaces have never actually been sort of legally mandated. And, you know, if if Jason, our editor-in-chief, had made us come into the office every day of the pandemic, he could have done. And there wouldn't have been much that we could have done about it. And so I think the reduction of the restrictions and the, you know, saying saying to people you can go back to work and you don't work from home anymore is going to expose that even more because there were actually even government bodies where people were reporting that they were being told to turn their Bluetooth off off on the app so that they could go in. But there's been stories like that even, you know, for public sector workplaces. So I think it's going to become even more exposed over summer how little protections there are for you at work, which not only means that employees going in might feel forced not to take the precautions that they should be doing, but it, it will also mean that the customers of restaurants and events, businesses and hospitality in general might not feel as comfortable going to these places because they they may assume that, that that's kind of what the employees in these places are doing. And it's always come down to that quite boring but important thing that, to be fair to the Labour Party, they have been calling for since pretty much the beginning of the pandemic, which is you have to have proper supported self-isolation, otherwise people aren't going to be incentivised to do it. The government clearly isn't going to be very forthcoming about how many people are actually deleting the app or not taking lateral photos that they should be taking at home. I mean, the numbers of pupils uh, in secondary schools taking the lateral flow tests has actually reduced, even though the number of cases has been going up in schools. And you can only assume that that's because it just doesn't suit the parents of these pupils to have to do that and to have to have their children off school last minute and potentially lose out on earnings. Do you get this sometimes from the sort of Westminster bubble? There's a bit of a like yawn when you mention self-isolation or sick pay or any of these things, but they are actually sort of central to what would make the system work much better. And they are actually something that the Labour Party has successfully pinpointed as an important gap in the government's response. And it's only going to become more intensified over the summer, I think. The dynamics of the pandemic have really, really changed because of the vaccination programme. So we are at a a strange stage where there are obviously groups of people who won't have full protection from the vaccine, like people with blood cancer. But in general, 
the way this unlocking is taking place and it's primarily affecting younger people who don't exercise much political or social power or economic power, like very likely to be in insecure work, very likely to be the people working, you know, in cinemas, in hospitality and so on. Completely anecdotally, I've never known so many people to be isolating all at once and so many people to be sick um, all at once. And I think the way that we're not having a conversation about particularly how to support those people, like maybe it is actually fine. Um, Like clearly this is the government's calculation. Maybe it is actually fine to withstand really high caseloads among people who are very unlikely to die from this. But it's still quite a heavy toll. I have like lots of friends with long COVID who really have had their lives turned upside down by it um, over many, many months. Maybe that is a cost that we're prepared to pay. But it just strikes me that it is it is quite a big burden. And there are some things that I think are very strange purely because of the absence of younger people in prominent positions in public life. Understandably, like who's 22 years old with a platform or whatever. It makes sense from a policy perspective, but it's also very bizarre to me that people who are double vaccinated will have certain privileges that people who haven't yet been offered both doses just won't have access to that it's entirely out of these people's control what stage they are in the vaccination program but they can't they can't control any of it and I think I think that sort of weird discrimination government policy is really strange because of the particular group involved that just doesn't really have much of a voice on this. Yeah, I was speaking to a teacher recently who was basically saying the government's pandemic response for this whole time has been geared mainly towards middle-aged, middle-class couples who go to garden centres. And and they pointed out that, you know, even the rule of six seemed to be built around couples who have dinner parties rather than, you know, people who may live more communally. You know, you might have someone's kids around and look after their kids for the day or, you know, on my estate, there are a bunch of families who spend all of their time together in, in the biggest sort of flat on the ground floor because they've got, you know, the biggest back garden and the biggest front garden. So it's it's interesting, I think, that that focus or bias has continued into this period where it's like, OK, well, the people who have been offered both jabs and have taken them up can now have more freedom than the people who have perhaps sacrificed the most in terms of their careers or, or their well-being up until this point. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P.
And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And this question is from Niall. Thanks for writing in. He asks, with Kim Leadbeater's success and Ryan Stevenson and Paul Williams' issues in the Batley and Spen and Hartlepool by-elections, why don't the major parties choose local candidates more often? Alva, do you want to start? I think this is a really good question because the thing that everyone... I'm, I'm aware that this is my first time chatting to the two of you about the Batley and Spen aftermath because I wasn't here on Monday. The thing that everyone in Labour agrees is that Kim Leadbeater was a good candidate because she was local. And I mean, I know that Anush, when we were recording the podcast last week, we talked about the the whispers among sort of less than gruntled Labour MPs who were sort of identifying some things that were less good about Kim Leadbeater's candidacy. I think those people still think those things, but they've, they're just, you know... The thing that everyone agrees is that she was good because she was local and that she had quite a substantial personal vote that people would say that they were voting for Kim on doorsteps rather than voting Labour in quite a lot of cases. I think there's a feeling that the Conservatives sat that race out in to, to an extent, so people began to view the race as it went on, especially after that clip of Kim Leadbeater being you know, spoken to quite harshly by that group of anti-LGBTQ activists. I think there was a, a sense of it being a two-horse race between Kim and George Galloway, and then people felt that they had to vote for her to prevent him rather than the Conservatives having a look in. I think that that was their strategic error that Labour did benefit from. But the local element of that was crucial. There was a sense of Kim's our local woman and he's coming up here and stoking division. One Labour person put it to me that by the end of the campaign, people had quite a visceral sense of whose side they were on, that they knew that if they saw an argument in the street between Kim and George Galloway, they'd know which side that they were on quite instinctively. But I think the local thing was very important, and it was also quite important for Sarah Green in Cheshman Amersham. All the conversations I've had with Lib Dems talking about how they're feeling off the back of that, the fact that she was a local voice was really important. Also in Hartlepool, we've said this before, but the independent there talking about the need for a local champion and a local businesswoman was was so key. And I think that maybe Labour is waking up to that. I've had quite a few conversations with people talking about how they're obviously at this point where as Stephen was talking about in the first half of the podcast, there are new people coming in and they're trying to hone the strategy and, and the communications. So there's this big moment going into the summer where they're thinking about how to refresh the strategy. You know, off the back of the Labour Together report, which sort of outlined a bit of a, an approach for, for forging the voter coalition that Labour would need to win again, one of the big ideas was that they need to unite their voter coalition with a story and a particular thing that that report highlights is is sort of place and there's also a book coming out by a former advisor to Ed Miliband about the importance of place. I think people have been slightly mocking of Labour's attempts to strike a more patriotic tone in some of their messaging and there's now a sense in Labour that they need to sort of put some meat on the bones of that that actually flags don't massively resonate with people but people's sense of patriotism comes from it's much more rooted in place in a particular town in a particular community and understanding how that place 
fits into the national picture, which was something that I think Kim Ledbetter did articulate quite well in her campaign, sort of seeing the way the local economies of Batley and Spen contributed to the wider economy and how that could be improved. We're probably going to see a lot more of that from the Labour Party of trying to focus on local voices, local people. That's even what Keir Starmer was saying um, in his in his sort of victory rally with Kim Ledbetter about, about local um, issues. So I think that we're going to see a lot more of that. And as part of this big Labour attempt, which I think will be really difficult to do, of trying to weave this big story that can unite very different groups of voters. And the need to have a message that appeals to all of those people encourages, you know, keeps your core vote with you, brings back Redwall voters and also energises people who weren't motivated last time to vote to all get behind you. I think that Labour is now starting to think that going local is the way to do that. I think that message has hit home, but it's strange that it's taken this long because, I mean, you, you just go to any by-election campaign for two minutes and the fact of who's local and who isn't is is immediately an issue. It's particularly useful in by-elections, not necessarily because there's always a very big candidate effect, although I think there was a candidate effect at Batley and Spen. I still think it was more of a failure of the Conservative campaign than a success of the Labour campaign. And that's not to underplay Kim Leadbeater's very good positive attitude and, and her local credentials. But I think it's interesting that they're ta- taking that route and this is their big plan because, of course, that opens up something that we've been talking about quite a lot on the podcast recently, the potential for contradictions between a local campaign and a national campaign. It's um, something that was put recently to me by an aide in the Green Party who was saying, eventually you ha- you get to the point of how you reconcile the vision of a green and pleasant candidate, you know, someone who is perhaps a bit nimbyish and speaking against infrastructure projects in the area and building and development and so on, with the national campaign message, which, you know, for the Labour Party and for the Green Party is going to have to include quite a radical vision for house building. You will get to that stage if you really do pin your hopes on building very strong campaigns around local issues in each seat. And of course, that's very expensive as well, because you have to understand each and every seat that you're fighting in, make sure that you have a good candidate in in each of those seats who has passed all of the other smell tests that the Labour Party or the Green Party or whoever wants you to pass um, before, before coming becoming the candidate. So it is quite a lot of extra work as well. And for a candidate effect to actually show up in in the outcome of vote is not always guaranteed. You know, there's not always a very strong bounce just because someone is um, an individual that the voters can that can kind of capture the imagination of voters. In terms of Batley and Spen, I do think that it's worth pointing out that the Conservative campaign was was so arrogant, you know, it was so complacent. The fact that they chose this guy Okay, he wasn't local, but he was a Leeds councillor. Like he wasn't so far removed from 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 the actual area, but they just made him look completely distant from the whole thing by the way that he just stood back, didn't get involved, didn't give any interviews, actually ran away when I tried to interview him, and it looks like neglected certain voters that they took for granted in the in the more conservative voting areas of the seat because 
there seems to have been quite a significant number of Tory and Lib Dem switches to the Labour Party, which perhaps the Tory campaign hadn't anticipated. That kind of campaign has worked for them before. I remember in Copeland, when Labour were Labour's candidate was someone who actually drove the ambulances in the area, and one of the big things in that seat in Cumbria was was the um, hospital being so far away from constituents um, and the sort of health cuts that had happened locally. And so she was a great, you know, from their perspective, a great candidate. The Conservatives just sort of sat back, you know, did try to do as little press as possible. I think I managed to speak to their candidate in this sort of quite remote country pub for all of two minutes because that's all they gave me and you know she wasn't particularly impressive and and they did actually end up winning that by-election and so it has worked for them in the past and so I think perhaps they've decided that this is you know something that they can get away with doing and they can't get away with doing it anymore and it's not necessarily because the opposition parties like the Lib Dems in Chesham and Amersham or Labour in Batley and Spen have been particularly good I think it's because they are neglecting those voters that they think they have in the bag. So I'm going to leap to the defence of Trudy Harrison. The, the <laughs> Sorry, in, Trudy. <laughs> in, in, in Copeland, right? She had worked in Sellafield. Yeah, the, the bet in that by-election, right, was the Labour Party going, we're going to talk lots about hospitals and we're going to do an awful lot of look. Whatever happens, doesn't matter what Jeremy Corbyn's views on nuclear power are. That's not up for grabs. Have we mentioned the hospital? And the Tory plan was basically to go, have we mentioned that he is on the record being opposed to your jobs? Now... The interesting thing I think about Copeland, right, is yes, Labour lost it, but they lost it incredibly narrowly. And then they lost it quite a lot more in June 2017, a better election, you know, a better electoral cycle for the Labour Party than Labour's polling in February 2017 or Labour's performance in the May 2017 election. So that is a really good illustration of the limits of candidate effects, right? You can you can have a great candidate if your leader is on the record as being opposed to the industry that employs people in that seat, you are obviously going to struggle. What I think is really interesting about the the very bad set of by-election candidates we've seen from both of the big two in this parliament is that that is a recent problem. Now, if it's very easy to draw up the ideal list of by-election candidate qualities. They should be local. Now, that is easier in some parts of the country, right? Take, say, Manchester Central 2012, where... I, whereas I don't know where in Manchester Lucy Powell was born, but people thought of her as local because she was from Manchester. And they didn't mind that she had been the candidate against the Lib Dems in Withington in 2010 because, well, Withington's in Greater Manchester. Ditto, right? If if you had a by-election in London, people aren't going to be like, oh, who's this person from Newham? Ditto, Newark by-election, everyone was like, oh, Robert Jenrick's local, by which they mean he was born and raised and had run in another seat in the West Midlands. And it didn't really matter, therefore, that the Labour candidate was like a local councillor because in the minds of voters in Newark, he was local enough. Whereas Jill Mortimer in Hartlepool was not local enough, despite not being much further from Hartlepool than Robert Jenrick was from from Newark. So it is a bit that it's harder in some places. But equally, if you know anything about a place, you should basically know what the level of local you need to have. The second requirement is that they can do as, you know, wow, this wasn't intending to be a how dare you, how <laughs> dare you wrong Trudy Harrison, Anush, but how dare you? <laughs> the thing about Trudy Harrison is you were able to talk to her for a couple of minutes. Yeah, she that's, could true, do, that's true. She could do local radio and local news, right? Whereas, why, and this is why I guess I think it's more interesting on the conservative side, right? You know, I, I'm sorry, I feel bad about saying this thing as these people have now all lost their jobs. But ultimately, Keir Starmer's original office was crap. They they weren't very good at some of the basics of politics. So like, 
this by-election was, yeah, okay, like they've won and that's allowed to, you know, should not have happened, right? Basic horizon scanning. Basic horizon scanning don't hold the Hartlepool by-election on the same day as the locals because it's going to, like, be the story of the result. Basic horizon scanning don't, you know, like, don't do your reshuffle late at night. Press release the controversial bit so people don't have time to, you know, object to it. Tell PLP what you're doing. That That's sort of basics of due diligence. Because if you think back to the Ed Miliband era by-elections, with the exception of, you know, Dan Jarvis, who was, you know, a literal soldier in a safe seat at the time, obviously, uh, that <laughs> seat's slightly more. Eh. Now, in all of the difficult by-elections, the Labour candidate under Ed Miliband was local, right? In the difficult Corbyn by-elections, you know, the ambulance driver, Gillian Troughton, mm, I want to yeah, say, um, memory. was on the record as having been a Corbyn sceptic, but they, the leader's office understood that she was their best chance of limiting the scale of that defeat. Ditto, Gareth Snell, an on-the-record supporter of Yvette Cooper, and of course, uh, we shouldn't forget, an on-the-record vocal critic of Brexit at the time. But again, local ticked the important box. Although, obviously, I think Kim was a great choice. She would have been an even better choice and would have won by more if they had just run her through the selection properly because she would certainly have won and the various people who felt bruised in the local party would have not felt bruised. They would have just been like, well, I had my shot. The mistakes of that office were still present in this this by-election. I think on the Tory side, it's more interesting because it's not clear, I think, to anyone. Indeed, the one person I spoke to who could say they had predicted it before was a MP, you know, because obviously I was in North Yorkshire, so I was passing through. You know, I posted on Instagram, they phoned and they said, oh, you know, why haven't you come to visit me? And I said, you know, I feel like I probably couldn't pitch that to my partner. And um, <laughs> and, the, and they said, you know, we're going to lose in Batley and Spain. I said, oh, and they said, this theory we've had of, oh, we'll stay silent, Labour and Galloway will fight in rats in the sack and we'll come through the middle. He was like, he was like Tory voters want to repudiate Galloway. What we needed to do is for our candidate to be every day going, Galloway is a bad person and unlike the Labour candidate, I don't have any compunction about saying so. And he said, and instead the voters who wanted to hear that from someone are going to vote for for Labour, which if you look at where she did well, that was clearly part of what went on. But the Tory party has had three terrible by-election candidates in a row and they've all been terrible in the same ways. Jill Mortimer, not local, couldn't be allowed out to talk to me. Yeah, I had no local media presence. But now what she, a gift. I mean, can yeah. we just appreciate? I mean, well, <laughs> I mean, that must be the best. That, that her brief media appearance where um, she was asked about whether <laughs> whether like a local steelworks should be renationalised. And she said that she didn't know enough about it. <laughs> Honestly, That's what golden. I want from my politicians. Yeah. Honesty. More of that from Jill, please. We haven't heard enough from her since she entered Parliament. And of course, she may turn out to be, you know, a fantastic legislator, but she was obviously an appalling by-election candidate. Peter Fleet. Again, I don't. I'm not, I'm not saying that I think that the Conservatives would have been able to win that by-election if the candidate hadn't, you know, almost been laboratory engineered to annoy. Voters, right? But you know, someone who wasn't a commuter in a ta- in a ta- in a seat full of commuters, someone who also someone who then wrote a very sort of here are all of the problems with the national party. Like again, the one thing you should select for in your by election candidate is is this person going to take a dump on our doorstep if we lose the by-election? Again, though, what a gift. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if listeners haven't seen Peter Fleet's Twitter thread, (laughs) incredibly gracious (laughs) in the wake of that defeat, do look it up. And then they had in this by-election a candidate who once again 
couldn't be allowed out on terms. Literally had to, I mean, no offense, Anoush, but like, I just think that if someone wants to become a legislator, they shouldn't be fleeing from a five foot something <laughs> Armenian journalist. Like, that's like, you, they shouldn't be hiding in a car. Like, I wasn't asking him questions about Nagorno Karabakh anymore. <laughs> I just think it's really interesting because I, I honestly think that if we'd said in 2019 and we just knew there were going to be three by elections, we'd asked to describe what the parties would do well. We'd go, the Tories will pick some nice, you know, lawyer, local chamber of commerce, you know, kind of ideal son or daughter in law appears to have no opinions or Kelly Tolhurst is a brilliant example of a fantastic by-election candidate 2014 they lost to Mark Revson in the by-election now an MP loyal you know kind of you know like just like a I'm a nice business lady who wouldn't do anything bad the Tory party were really good at this until two years ago and they have had three stinkers in a row and I just think that's I mean, maybe they will kind of go, oh, we've, we've had a bit of a shock to the system and we need to improve. But I think that's more interesting to me because it's not wholly clear why they've got bad at this. Whereas we can, I think, all understand what it is went wrong in Labour's by-election choices in this set of by-elections. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. If you want to email in a question to you ask us, email one in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.